0: Three of my employees, they have lost family members as a result of the poor healthcare system. I want justice for those, for those people. I want justice for my team members. I want justice for people who are deciding whether they can buy groceries or diapers or they have to get the collector off their back.
1: Hey, what's up guys, Spencer Smith here, host of the Self-Funded with Spencer podcast, sponsored by Pareto Health, ClaimDoc, and PlanSite. Enjoy today's episode.
0: I turned 40 this year, and that really helped me, because now, like, I don't know about you, you're 41. Yeah. When I turned 40 this year, I was like, finally, I don't need to care anymore. Like, I <laughs> am, I've passed that little well, bump tell, in My the wife road. turns
1: 39 in January, so <laughs> I'll see how she feels yeah. at 40 if she feels the same way. I almost think it was like a liberating thing. Like there was this almost like this badge of honor. I'm 40 now. Mm-hmm. And I, like you, we talked about earlier, I spent a lot of time sort of just taking care of myself physically mm-hmm. and yeah. staying in shape. You go so, to the gym a huh? lot. I do. Yeah. yeah. Quite a bit. So it's like, okay, I'm 40 now, mm-hmm. but I'm pretty happy with what it looks like to be 40. So yeah. maybe it's not that big a deal. And then also these gray hairs and things like that <laughs> perhaps might make me a little more credible to other folks. There you go. <laughs> there's something you deal with too. And we'll get it. I'm sure we're recording. Right. Yeah. So, We'll get into it too, but like, there's also something when um, you look young mm-hmm. that you don't portray the same level of gravitas and credibility. Yep. And so you start fighting against like, well, they just think I don't know what I'm talking about if right. I look too young. Right. So yeah. the beard has been prevalent for the last couple of years, hopefully trying to make it where you go, Hey, listen to me. I kind of, I've been around enough to know what I'm talking about a little bit. But
0: That's so funny. I feel like it's the opposite for women in our industry. I feel like you have to look a little bit older to be taken seriously and women have to remain younger to get the attention they need to be taken seriously. Mm. Isn't that interesting? Cause you're right. If mm. you had some more gray in your beard, the most obvious conclusion would be you've been doing this for a long time, yeah. and you know exactly what you're talking right. about. Right? It's it's weird how it's a that really works. Interesting point.
1: Yeah. <laughs> hey, epiphanies with Emma Fox. That's what we'll call this episode. Pareto Health is the manager of the largest employee benefits group captive in the United States, and it's also now the main sponsor of the Self Funded with Spencer podcast. I chose to partner with Pareto Health for three main reasons. Number one, their dedication to improving the world of health benefits. Number two. Their mission, to reduce volatility and to make self-funding simple for mid sized employers. And number three, the strength and scale of their program. With over 2,300 member groups and more than $1 billion of stop-loss premium under management, Pareto Health is the most robust solution of its kind in the country, period. Stay tuned for more information because I'm sure I'll be featuring them on an episode of the podcast very soon. Visit Pareto Health at ParetoHealth.com or follow them on LinkedIn to stay up to date on the latest news and developments. Let's go ahead and kick off our, okay. our episode officially. So I think chronologically, I'll release the episodes in order that way. We're not oddly referencing things that are in the future and people can't follow along. So okay. Emma, you were you were on in the joint episode yeah. uh, earlier today. We got a little bit of who you are, but obviously right. we conscientiously decided to hold some of that back for mm-hmm. right now. So Emma Fox, why don't you introduce yourself to the audience and then give us some of your, your backstory?
0: Sure. Um, I am a lot of things, but as it relates to my business, I am a partner at a, at a firm and we're a very different firm. We, we do things very differently. And we work only in transparent environments. A lot of people say that they do that, but I don't lie very well. Mm. And truth is really, really, really important to me. Mm. In fact, I find it physically difficult to, to not be, uh, honest and, what I do at work is just, I, I tell the truth. I tell the truth about the healthcare system. I tell the truth about my experience. I was a carrier rep for uh, large insurers for most of my career over a decade. Um, and I witnessed a lot of stuff and it was hard for me to continue to perpetuate uh, an untruth in those roles. And so what I do now is I'm completely liberated. I work for myself mm. um, alongside my husband. And so I just get to tell the truth every single day about what's going on in my business.
1: That's awesome. Well, yeah. we had a chance to hear the David and Emmons story together, mm-hmm. um, which I think is obviously still being built, right? Mm-hmm. The story is in, in real time. But I really wanted to be conscious about having a, a sit down with both of you because then we could really get the backstory and know who you are and what you believe. And I, I feel like you guys disagree a little bit, yeah. which is great and probably a positive thing um, at net. But then that, I want to hear you know your perspective on healthcare versus David's <laughs> and then we can shape sort of how we how we view that uh, together. But how did you get into healthcare? healthcare in the first place or what we consider the healthcare industry.
0: Uh, it was completely by accident. I actually moved here from England. My, yeah, my, I was going
1: to ask you about that. Yeah, yeah my so
0: family's from England. I was born in Bristol, which is in the Southwest. And uh, when I was 18, I, I moved to the States by myself. Um, no particular reason, actually, other than I just I wanted to go somewhere else. And I needed a job. So I went to a staffing agency, easiest way to get a job. Right. And they placed me at an insurance company, you know, admin position. It was actually in the life insurance claims department. Mm. So a little department pressing, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, processing life insurance claims all day. It it was, it was not on purpose, not even a a little bit, but
1: where in the States was this, this
0: was in Oregon. Oregon, Yeah. Um, I, I just did really well. I had a knack for understanding the nuances of insurance and policies even though I had no experience with it. And so from there, I just kind of moved to um, ancillary benefits, right? Like dental and vision, okay. understood that perfectly, and then ended up in actual health insurance.
1: Okay. Well, I got a couple <laughs> questions uh, about this. So one, you said you, you didn't detect my Texas accent. So no. how did you get rid of your Bristol? Okay. Things,
0: you know? I'll tell you the truth. I got rid of it on purpose, and I'll tell you why. Okay. And I don't want to offend anybody, but there is nothing more aggravating than being – face-to-face with an American and having them mimic your accent the whole entire time that you're trying to have a conversation. And I was, I'm actually from the South of England, which is not unlike being from the South here. And so my, I had a very thick and unique accent and sometimes people couldn't understand me. So I did phase it out on purpose to try to fit in. How Uh,
1: did you do that though?
0: I, I listened a lot, and I grew up watching a ton of American TV. I watched a ton of American movies. They're very prevalent where I'm from. Uh, so it wasn't hard. I mean, we do the same thing, right? British people make fun of you guys.
1: Oh, I was gonna say, I was gonna tell that exactly. I went, so I played soccer growing up, and in college, we had a, a British a teammate of mine. He was uh, from Lewis, which is just outside of Brighton. Mm-hmm. And I remember going over there and spending a couple of weeks with him, and his, his girlfriend at the time, her American accent that she would do, she's like, I want a cup of coffee and a donut. And that's, how, that's what she thought American yes. sounded like. I'm sure that's watching New York based cop TV shows yep. or something. But I thought it was hilarious to hear somebody from England do an American accent yeah. to my face and make fun of Americans uh, as we yeah. all sounded like that.
0: It's funny the first few times, yeah. but then you're trying to get through everyday life at the grocery store or you're trying to interact with someone somewhat seriously. And it, it's funny though, because there are so many accents in life that you would never, mm-hmm. ever mimic mm-hmm. for fear of offending someone. But American accents, English accents—they're—they're they're up for grabs. I well, and guess. there's a
1: novelty about it because yeah. we don't hear them every day. Right. I'm, I'm totally guilty of doing that exact same thing. I
0: can switch it on and off. Yeah, whenever. Yeah, I you
1: gotta just bust it out yeah. and confuse me here. But the other <laughs> thing I want to ask you is, coming to the states and seeing this thing we call U.S. healthcare—like yes. initial impressions—like what did you think about it?
0: I didn't interact with the healthcare system until I got into a car accident. Okay. So. I was working in insurance already, uh, didn't quite understand it. I was still in the life insurance, uh, realm at that point, but I actually got into a hit and run. Someone hit my car, drove off. There was no insurance involved, but at the time I was pregnant and totaled my car, Mitsubishi Eclipse, very cool vehicle for me. And, uh, yeah, they were, they were sweet. It totaled my car and I had to go to the trauma room. So the ambulance shows up. They're asking me. It's so funny because I hadn't been in the States all that long. And they're asking me like, who's the, who is the last president and who? And I'm like, I
1: I don't don't know. know."
0: (laughs) 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 Um, So I go to the hospital. I'm kept under observation for a while. I ended up being okay, but I, uh, I did have some injuries and then, A few weeks later, and I had an employer group health plan. It was pre-ACA, so there weren't as many limitations, Mm -hmm. like the out-of-pocket max and stuff. And um, then the bills started coming in. And I had not seen numbers that big before. You know, we've got like a trauma room bill and an ER bill and a physician's bill and a lab bill and a follow-up bill. And I was making like, I didn't even know what the minimum wage was back then, but it was not enough to Mm -hmm. cover all of that. And so I carried that debt probably for 12 years and I eventually gave up. And keep in mind, The whole time I'm building my career and I'm working with insurance carriers and I'm figuring out paycheck to paycheck. Do I pay this hospital, this collector? And then the collector sells it to another collector and you just can't track it. And you're like, how much of this is interest versus the medical debt? So I did that for 12 years before I finally uh, filed medical bankruptcy. And I remember the day that my bankruptcy was final, I had to go to work the next day. And the whole experience was different. It was like, it was like experiencing a day at work with a completely different perspective. And I remember being so mad, like so resentful thinking this is the very organization that was meant to protect me from this day. And it didn't. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't go back. Mm. I just didn't go back. Wow. I quit. You quit? I quit. Yeah.
1: Okay. So what'd you do next?
0: I went to work for a third-party administrator in Montana. So I was commuting from Portland, Oregon to Billings, Montana once a month. It was a fantastic experience. Did you um, discover
1: self-funding at this time? I
0: did. You know, by accident, I was always in the self-funded arena because I was always on large national accounts. That's where I I just kind of got put on that team. And so I was always in the ASO team Mm -hmm. uh, for the Carriers Administrative Services, self-funded. And so I, I knew a little bit about it, but then I got to do truly unbundled self-funded, uh, plans. And I learned so much. And I had this incredible leader, his name's Trevor Dare. He was my boss. He hired me. If you can believe that he's fantastic. I didn't know
1: that was the case though.
0: Irked me though, because he was younger than me. And I was like, what do you know about anything? But he did know a lot about a lot. And, uh, he, he was really the person that he believed in me. He, he knew my story. He was like, just go get them, go do, you know, stand on your platform and do the thing. And he was, he was the person that, that gave me the the that's space. Awesome. Yeah.
1: Well, Trevor Dare I he's mean, fantastic. I was going to say his, he's Patrick PBM in that Tom Broker episode yeah. coming out tomorrow. Uh, but uh, that's funny that I didn't realize that that, that connection yeah. existed. So then um, how long were you at the the TPA? Or doing Just that? a couple of years. Okay, okay. Yeah. When did you eventually venture out and start doing things on your own?
0: It was right after I ran into David, so uh, 2018. In the joint episode, you'll see yeah. we met. We kind of had this this thing in common that we hadn't found in any anybody else at that point. And I remember him and I having these crazy discussions, like, should we just do this? Should we just like have an agency? And would all we do is non buca based mm-hmm. uh, stuff? And I was at a point in my career where I was like. Why not? I think, I think we could do it. And that, that was the year that E-Powered was formed and we've been doing it ever since.
1: That's awesome. Yeah. What'd you think about entrepreneurship at first?
0: I was terrified. Were you? Okay. Terrified. Yeah. I didn't know what the heck I was doing. It, interestingly, my father is an entrepreneur, but I learned nothing from him whatsoever. Okay. Okay. Clearly wasn't paying attention. <laughs> And I didn't know anything about what I was doing. I leaned very heavily on David's business skills, which thankfully he has a lot of. Um, but I've I've grown tremendously in the last five years.
1: Oh, I can only imagine. And one of the things yeah. I think we'll cover here in a moment is just the association uh, that you uh, formed. And I want to hear all, all about that. But, uh, you know, this notion of being an entrepreneur and then obviously you've got your own identity, right? And then you, But you're doing business with your husband simultaneously. Yeah. And we, I think we covered it on the previous episode. Your day in the life of Emma yes. and David is pretty, pretty intense and busy yeah. and those things like that. But then have you been able to sort of retain who you are throughout all that? And do you think maybe building businesses is giving you an opportunity to sort of build? uh... I'm
0: so glad you asked me that. No one's ever asked me that before. And I'm glad you did because I struggled with that so much when he and I first got together. He is such a prominent Mm -hmm. and polarizing figure in our industry. And he's not like that at home at all, by Mm -hmm. the way. He's completely opposite. Okay. Uh, at home, but it was really hard not to to exist in his shadow for a really long time. And we talked about this before the episode started. The amount of people that mistake me for his account manager or his secretary. How,
1: how is that possible? I, I've never Still, thought that in my life. So how? Why is? <laughs> why do people think that?
0: I don't know. Maybe because I grew up in account management, they just okay. assume. But yeah, I, I felt, I mean, I've had a couple of moments of crisis where I thought, I, I don't think I can do this because I'm sacrificing my brand and my reputation because he's so much more powerful than me verbally. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I just, I ended up talking to a few people. I have really good friends, Nancy, Nancy Giacalone mm-hmm. and Susan Combs are two women who really got to me and said, you, you, you need to stand your ground. And, I did that by uh, launching things that were important to me without asking him to participate. And that was, that was a new thing too, because we had e-powered together. And so it felt like everything we do um, subsequently would obviously be together. And so I had to kind of shift out of that and be like, well, not really. I could do whatever I want. I don't have to do it with David. So I started doing stuff not with David. That's
1: <laughs> hey, that's the easiest way yeah. to say just Sort of self-identify, right? Is, yeah. is to do so so what are the, one of those things I think we should talk about now is the association. And yeah. so why don't we just define what we mean when we say that first, and then we talk about what you built specifically.
0: Sure. Um, the association is for healthcare advisors. Some people call it uh, AFHCA, or you can call it AFCA. AFCA, okay. Um, It's really a group of members and solution providers who are committed and willing to prove that they are transparent in their business dealings and maintain good ethical standing in our business, which is not easy to do. um, But there's quite a few of us. It's been growing pretty steadily.
1: What do they do? They have to get a tattoo or something. How do they prove that they're? They. <laughs>
0: that's a good idea. Yeah. No. And them with
1: a hot iron, maybe. I don't know.
0: So it's it's not easy to do. If you are a solution provider, you have to provide um, all of your contracts for three clients in good standing that show all of your fees and outline any excess commission that you're getting. And it has to be uh, verified by our entire board of directors. We have a very talented board. And if you are uh, a broker, it's even harder because as a self-funded advisor, Mm. you have to submit every contract for every component of your self-funded health plan on a minimum of three clients in good standing that show all of your fees outlined. Now, Unlike David, I don't believe that fully insured brokers are bad. So there is a way for fully insured brokers to get verified, too, even if you get commission. What we care about is that you're transparent and you disclose it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the only thing the association really does. It's, it's the core of what we do, I guess, not the only thing. Um, we verify that an advisor is transparent and is disclosing their compensation. So that
1: leads to my next question. So why an association? Why was this model appropriate for what you were trying to achieve?
0: Well, first, I wanted it to be a nonprofit. Um, It's not something that I wanted to get rich off of and not something I thought I could get rich off of either. Um, And I also didn't want it to be mine forever. I I don't believe that stale leadership helps anything. So it was important to me to be able to pass it on. Um, An association because I wanted to be able to expand, if we wanted to, into politics and into lobbying. So we have a couple folks on our board who are very astute Uh, political insiders that we could leverage further down the road. So an association made more sense from that standpoint. Okay.
1: And then in terms of the folks that want to join the association, what are some of the things that they'd be seeking by being accredited or validated, if you will, in your association?
0: So of course, the verification, they'd be able to tell their clients or their prospects that they've been verified, that they're ethical, and they're one of the good folks that, that's working in our business. Um, but we also do certification courses. So every single member of our board is developing uh, or has developed some at some point a certification course for a particular skill set in this business. So they have the opportunity to learn from every single person who sits on our board. And a lot of it is the stuff that we do, right? It's the alternative funding stuff. It's the non-traditional... <laughs> um, plan building and configuration, learning how to architect any of this is important. Um, but you also get to connect with a bunch of like-minded folks who are also verified. So it's kind of about the company that you keep, right? Have you heard that? It, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's the company that you keep.
1: Well, I mean, there are things like a true network advisors. There's mm-hmm. obviously a band, there's some other t- associations kind of for brokers to join, not necessarily for the accreditation's side, but the network component, maybe the access to resources yep. to deal with other like-minded agencies. So you all kind of build a, a, a better solution together, if mm-hmm. you will, on um, the premise of the captive and our members meeting, it's very similar for that reason. Yeah. PlanSight is a complete game changer in the world of insurance broker. As a broker, you know how time-consuming and error-prone the traditional RFP process can be. But what if I told you, there's a better way. PlanSite is the only end-to-end RFP solution on the market made specifically for benefits agencies. It's like having a superpower that gets you an average of eight to 10 hours back per employer renewal per year. And the best part, PlanSite supports all carriers, all funding types, and all group sizes for over 20 different benefits. If you're ready to make your RFP process faster, more efficient, and more profitable, it's time to call PlanSite. Visit PlanSite.com now to book a free demo and discover the future of insurance renewals. But I'm curious, though, like the association model, um, and you said it's a nonprofit, like in terms of handing it off and what you want it to achieve eventually, like what is the bigger, bigger goal for you with that?
0: So I believe that the current healthcare system can't be reformed. I, right. I just don't... I, I think we've tried. We've chipped away at it. It, it. We've done some good work. I think what I realized the last year or two is that we've already built a new one. The issue is we have to make sure that it maintains its integrity. Yeah. And it's been built by people who are transparent and who yeah. believe in good ethical standing. And so my worldview is that if we can connect as many employers as possible with these advisors Mm -hmm. who are verifiably transparent we'll do good work it'll it'll figure itself out as we continue to build it and because these are the advisors that are building it and working in it so the goal really is to continue to to grow this network of advisors who are verified so that we can succinctly say to an employer this is Spencer is one of the good guys and we recommend that you work with him yeah. and then we know that Spencer is is getting access to all of those tools and resources that will help them exist in this parallel healthcare system and have better outcomes and spend less money
1: one is- Yeah, it's one thing to say he or she is one of the good guys or gals, but then give them the tools available so that they are actually doing what they espouse that they're going to do, right? Which is that is where you get that network effect because the outcomes start to build upon themselves. The referrals it reinforces probably to the consultant I assume as well that I am doing good work. I should continue to pour into this and get better. And you know, I, I could see where that would have like sort of a compounding effect. But why, if you don't use the word? reform our healthcare system? What do you think it needs to be instead? Because you've got this parallel thing you've built, but what should the existing, what should happen? Is it an implosion? What what should we do with it then in your mind?
0: So the first symposium I hosted at the very end, uh, as I was saying farewell to everyone, I said, I want everyone to go away and think about it. And I want all of you to envision that we blow up the the current system Mm -hmm. and it's in pieces all around you. I want, I want to know what pieces would you keep? Mm. What pieces would you throw away? What would you bring in from outside? And uh, I want you to email me what you think those answers are. And I think I got two, maybe three emails. Nobody really knew. Mm. Everyone had kind of, we were talking about it at the symposium. Everyone had kind of an idea. Here's what I think. And Jeff Gold, do you know, Dr. Yeah. Jeff Gold? Yeah,
1: so I think i did I read some earlier on the DPC talk? Yeah. I don't think I mentioned in my name. Yeah.
0: He is the grouchiest, uh, direct primary care physician, but he's probably one of the most insightful. And he embarrassed me on a call a few years ago. I was okay. having a, a coffee break phone call and we were discussing just the potential of universal health care. Would it work in the U S okay. and we had, uh, someone on from Canada, someone from England and someone from New Zealand discussing it. And, He sat very quietly and he watched the whole call. And at the end, he raised his hand and uh, you never know what's going to come out of Jeff's mouth. So I was like, "Okay, hi, Jeff. And he said, Emma, I just don't know how you have the audacity to have this whole discussion about universal health care without asking a single clinician what they think. Mm. And while I was embarrassed, I also couldn't argue with him at all. I thought, gosh, why don't I ask doctors, what they think. And so I started doing that a few years ago. I started asking doctors. And for me, it's clear that the only thing that will fix healthcare is restoring the doctor patient relationship without anybody in between it. Um, so that's what we work on. And right now it's DPC. I think there's room for that to evolve. Um, I wish that we could create an inclusive healthcare system that was free of insurance completely Mm. I think the DPC model would actually work well um, for things above and beyond DPC, the, the membership model. I think there's some work to do there, but that's kind of that's kind of where I'm going with it.
1: Well, don't let me forget. I want to come back to what are some of the other pieces that are brought up, but I do want to continue down this line of discussion with DPC. What else would you do? How would you level up DPC to be able to handle more comprehensive style interventions than not just your typical primary care?
0: So I think it already exists. It's just about putting the pieces together, okay. which – is I think what I'm kind of doing in a way. But if you think about it, we have direct primary care right now that takes care of the primary care uh, stuff. Everybody knows Green Imaging, Dr. Kristen Dickerson. She can refer you for your ima- imaging that you need. Uh, we know that most labs can be done in DPC offices or independent labs mm-hmm. that are cash pay or, or membership fee. And then right here in your backyard, you have uh, North Texas Team Care, Dr. K, mm-hmm. who runs uh, his clinic, his surgical uh, center, yeah. on a very similar model. Yeah. And in my head, I'm like, why don't we just connect all these pieces? And if we connected all these pieces and and we figured out what that what does that really cost monthly and could we do a sliding scale for folks in lower income areas? Yeah. We could literally create an entire healthcare delivery system, a clinic, a hospital mm-hmm. that never has to file a single piece of insurance. So then the question is, okay, how do we replicate that mm-hmm. in the same place so that you can have all the pieces together.
1: When I even ask the question on top of that is what do you retain from the existing system, right? If there are pieces that were scattered about and you would pick them up, you ask that question, mm-hmm. what were the pieces that do seem viable to continue to use? The people. Okay. Yeah. That's, okay. I
0: mean, some of the technology I will give, uh, Kaiser is a good example, right? Uh, they're, they lean to the good side, but they have state-of-the-art hospital systems. They leverage technology in their Mm. surgeries. Now we see everything being done laparoscopically, but we also forget that that takes an incredibly skilled surgeon to operate on someone laparoscopically. Uh, In fact, it takes a lot more skill to to do that than operate on someone openly. So I think we keep all the people, we keep the clinicians, and then we restore their relationship with patients, which is what they all went to school to do in the first place. So is the
1: problem really the insurance then. Yeah. Okay. So then what do we retain insurance to do? Because like David was talking about in his episode, and I would be in agreement with him that insurance in its original form or what it was supposed to do is a catastrophic mm-hmm. style situation. That's why you purchase insurance for something that is totally unforeseen, an extreme amount of money, and it's there to protect you in that type of mm-hmm. event. Home, your home burns down as an example, total your car as an example. So how do we apply that to healthcare and restore it for the way that it was supposed to be used?
0: I think your question has a multifaceted answer, but something that you would understand, think about aggregate Mm stop-loss. Is it expensive? No. But is it effective if you need to use it? Yes. Right. So it's not all that different, right? If if we're pooling the risk as we do Mm -hmm. in stop-loss and captives, which is a great strategy for some people, I I view it kind of as the ag insurance that you hope you'll never need. It's cheap, it's affordable, but it's, it's for when it goes real badly. Right. I think you can deploy something really similar to that in the healthcare system. As long as people are getting the crucial primary care that they need, that includes mental health resources. Mm -hmm. um, And, Anything up to the specialist level should be completely affordable. And then we use something like aggregate insurance or that model Mm -hmm. or replicate that model to make sure that we're protecting everybody above that.
1: So does the employer in your mind, at least if we're talking about employer-employee relationship and that type of health care or health insurance delivery, I want to make sure I partition that do they still play a role and are they still the payer in that situation then if we get rid of insurance? Gosh, that's a good question. You know, I, mean, I mean, I'm asking answers <laughs> questions I don't know the answer to either, but I love sort of the thought experiment yeah. of this because I've, I've often thought, what if you took the notion of stop-loss insurance mm-hmm. at an employer level, If I, as an individual, individual could buy Mm stop-loss insurance, but then simply health care itself was paid for in some sort of cash-based or direct contracted model, but I'm still not the payer. Ultimately, the employer is still able to give me health insurance or coverage, right? So how do we achieve that?
0: Well, what's interesting is you think about really small groups. So I used to not help small groups. Honestly, because I had no idea how to help them. I grew up in, in large national accounts, self-funded. I had no idea really about small group coverage. Um, but we had a lot of small groups come and just say, is there like anything you can do to help? And so we started doing direct primary care with medical cost sharing kind of the same premise, right? Because the employers are paying for that. They're paying for the DPC membership for all of their employees. And then they're also subsidizing some kind of medical cost sharing. So when that catastrophic thing happens, they're able to share in the cost or help in the cost. I think you're right. I think it kind of looks a little bit like stop loss insurance. And it is something that the employer can use for recruitment and retention just as well, but it would cost the employer a whole lot less and it wouldn't cost the employee much. Yeah. And
1: then that, how do you then take what, like David maybe mentioned, I think David mentioned this earlier, where what would maybe have been deployed in the form of I'm taking premium out of your pocket Mm -hmm. and then perhaps instead, because we've cut costs so much now there's more going back into your paycheck and more is coming in the form of wages. I don't think, I don't think people will, it'll be very hard psychologically for them to decouple employer providing health insurance, right? Like, So if we could make the form of health insurance more optimized, but still the employer ultimately is providing that as a benefit, Mm -hmm. there's this expectation in today's world that that's being provided as a benefit. But so I think you have an an angle that you like to take that is a little more regulatory or legislative in nature, Mm -hmm. perhaps might involve more of, I would say, I don't know, the government or perhaps involvement of a political solution. So what would that look like to you? What needs to maybe be taken from the private sector in your mind and put into the public realm?
0: I wish that we didn't need government to do this for us. Um, My stance is that we need less government involved, but the reality is that that's not going to happen. They're already incredibly involved. And so we need to be leveraging the relationships we have to get them to do good things. And if you look at, uh, mandating reimbursements, for example, what they did in Maryland. Was it perfect? No. But it had amazing effects on the cost and quality of hospital services in Maryland. If anyone's uh, not, I, familiar, I guess I'm not familiar. I am not
1: familiar. Could you okay, explain that a little so bit more?
0: In yeah. Maryland, some years ago, uh, the government stepped in and mandated the amount the hospitals are reimbursed for, for services. Okay. And so what that did, in my opinion, was forced hospitals to become cost-efficient, because now they can't afford complications or readmissions or uh, you know overcharging, because they're only getting a specific amount of money back for services no matter what. It was not a perfect system. Again, now we're mandating what the hospitals can get back, which is not all that different than how Medicare works. Mm-hmm. right? But what the experiment really showed is that hospitals have to now control their margins in order for them to make money, which meant that they had to control their costs. It also improved quality almost by accident because the higher quality care has less complications, less readmissions. It, it kind of proved that if we mandated what a hospital could get for the services that they render, we could control the cost of health care. I don't know exactly why we haven't put this in every single state, but I think there's a viability there. If we had a DPC for all, which I think we've talked about a couple times today, we gave dpc to everyone just so that so that regular americans can get primary care it's yeah. not that much to ask mm-hmm. and then we mandate how much a hospital can bill or receive after that i think everyone would be better off but the problem with that is that we have this other entity that's kind of poking their nose in which are the insurance carriers and mm-hmm. so it again the answer to your question is probably multi-layer. One,
1: well, it's ambiguous, right? And I, <laughs> yes. I think this is where we all have to live in the healthcare uh, industry is that we have yeah. to live with a world that's ambiguous to a degree. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I, I think I gravitated towards self-funding and stop-loss insurance especially is that there was no right exact answer. Yeah, You had to be confident in your ability to come up with what you believed was the best right. answer, but I could be swayed one way or the other with new evidence or somebody giving me a different perspective, mm-hmm. but ultimately you have the tools and the evidence at your disposal and you have to make the best recommendation based on that information. Mm -hmm. There is no right answer. It's not like two plus two equals four, right? We don't get that in our world. And so you have to accept (laughs) this. So then what, from a lobbying perspective or for, you know, getting to legislators and politicians, what does that look like? How do you influence somebody like that to see your worldview? They don't have, they have a very limited understanding of healthcare in general and convince them to Mm -hmm. do something. Like, what does that look like?
0: I got to tell you, it's disappointing because I grew up in an association. I joined early in my career that was a, a lobbying association. And I can't really think of a single thing that was meaningful to me that we got done. <laughs> and I, um, I recently had an opportunity to meet the president of the United States. Okay. okay. And I was so excited. Uh, I, I don't think it matters who the president is. Like you get to meet the president. Mm. That's kind of a big deal. And we got to talk with him and some other folks uh, in the hallways leading up to him for a little while and talked about health care. And it wasn't until I started having conversations with actual politicians that I realized that they do not know the difference between health care and health insurance. Mm-hmm. If you hear a politician tell you that they're running on a health care platform, what they mean is they're running on a health insurance yeah, platform. Yep. They're trying to get as many people as possible into the ACA plans or the exchange plans and that has nothing to do with health care. That doesn't improve health care access, affordability, or delivery. And so I decided recently to focus my efforts at home, which now is North Carolina. So I got involved with my local attorney general uh, campaign race that's going on right now. And I'm trying to help him understand that health care is not health insurance. They're <laughs> two completely different things. Yeah. But the problem, to go back to your question about having these conversations on, on a political level, is that you got to start from scratch. You have to like undo what they believe is health care, which is really health insurance, and Mm-hmm. that's a long, that's a long game. That's a long
1: play. Point. How much time do you get with them? And even if they have enough time with you, how much do they really truly understand? And what I always question is a lot of the legislation seems to have good intentions on the surface. Mm-hmm. And then once it actually comes to fruition, whether it's through a bill or something like some other type of reform, often stuff, other stuff gets mm-hmm. inserted in because of other yep. political. And you're like, wait, this is what not what we wanted, but yeah. I believe the intention <laughs> think, no. is still good, but the outcomes themselves don't always match with what the intentions are. Yeah. And so it's like, is the, political realm the most efficacious realm to go down or do you just let them let's give them that because maybe they can solve that particular piece um but like a wholesale overtaking worries me uh yeah just knowing what i've seen other government programs turn into Um, so that's that's how i caveat this that's my biggest concern is like the private sector i i believe will solve it um but i think don't think the incentives exist right now Mm -hmm. to get it solved Fully. Right. Um, But that's just me. I mean, I'm just kind of waxing a little bit with you philosophically, but... ClaimDoc is a medical claim auditing and member advocacy company. We provide fiduciary services to employer-sponsored benefit plans, allowing them to create an environment where we ensure that the benefit plans are being charged in a fair and reasonable basis. My business is basically people, and it became a real simple transition we thought it was going to be far more complex. I've saved, we'll say hundreds of thousands of dollars. I could not say enough about ClaimDoc. But I, I do want to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, the, I know, I was telling you earlier over coffee, the Emma Fox brand. I'm seeing a little bit more, yeah. and I know that makes you a little <laughs> uncomfortable. But it seemed as if you were putting some emphasis on sort of building your public persona so people were aware of you. And obviously, I know what that will do is ultimately lead to do business with them. But talk to me about why you kind of went down that route and maybe some of the experiences of being a little more public uh, now. <laughs>
0: Um, I went down that route because I feel like I I love LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn a lot. I love, uh, brokers and folks in our industry, but I feel like we're not reaching the right audience. Mm -hmm. And I knew I had to reach consumers and employers, which is, is tricky to do. So I started looking like, you know, oh, HR conferences, but HR are not the folks that are really making the decisions. Mm -hmm. And so I decided I really needed to get in front of people, just regular people, and so I did hire a publicist for a little bit. It was super overwhelming.
1: Um, what does it look like? What does what a publicist, <laughs> I mean, I know what publicity looks like, but like, what are they having you do or how are they, yeah, you need to do this and this and that. Like i want, I always want to She's
0: fantastic. Are. She's incredible. Um, what they do is they identify opportunities where you can be in the public eye and kind of give your message. And it, it, they do a great job. And and I got tons of opportunities. Yeah. You know, part of the reason I met uh, President Biden recently was because my publicist. It, it's very overwhelming to just be kind of thrown yeah. in as this spokesperson for yeah. the industry that nobody asked you to be. Um, but I do realize that until we can educate consumers and the folks that provide their benefits right now, we're really not going to make nearly as much traction. You know, Agreed. I love our symposium, don't get me wrong, but we're all in the same room. We're all doing the same thing. We all get it. Mm-hmm. All of us are there for well, the same want reason. we don't end
1: up in an echo chamber thinking we're like, <laughs> yes. doing, we're doing all the good things and yeah. we'll tell the story. And it's literally everybody that we're talking to mm-hmm. or hears us already agrees with us, right? Yeah, That's a problem.
0: I will tell you the two best testimonials I got from last or this year's symposium uh one was the photographer that we hired she's not in the industry at all mm-hmm. she's a photographer mm-hmm. and she called me up afterwards and said i've i i just had no idea i had no idea that this whole thing existed that the healthcare system was like this i had no idea that there were people that cared and then another guy was the tech guy from someone's brokerage and he told me on the phone i've never been in a room where i felt like so many people cared about my well-being without ever knowing who i am mm-hmm. And those are just the most powerful ones because it's folks that are stepping into this and it's completely foreign to them. The language we're speaking is not something that they can understand, but they get this sense of, oh my gosh, somebody really cares. Not just somebody, but hundreds of people care. Mm And that's kind of what got me to thinking, like, I gotta reach more of those people so that they can understand that there, you know, there's stuff going on and we can we can help them with it.
1: Well that, that is the kind of the frustrating challenge, right? Is then how do you distill the language that we use and the problems that we're trying to solve down to a simple enough level that you can not only explain it properly to a person that doesn't do what we do, but then is moved enough mm-hmm. to want to go, I want to do something different, or I want to talk to my employer, or I believe in this, I want to talk. I mean, that, that's hard because you've got to, not a, dumbing down the language, I think we both agree, we don't want to say dumbing down, mm-hmm. but it's simplifying the language. Yeah, What we do is really complex, yeah. right? So that the <laughs> art is, how do you take it and make it so simple that enough people get moved by what you're saying, they come around to your worldview and they want to do something as a result of that. That's the trillion dollar uh, <laughs> problem here. But so what what would that look like when you're having those conversations in the public eye as a De facto spokesperson for healthcare. Like, what did that look like? What kind of conversation? What were they asking? Probably very basic questions. I yeah. Assume, right.
0: Yeah. And a lot of people are confused as to as to what's what and who does what and what what is a primary care doctor and and what is their scope really? We get a lot of pushback on direct primary care because people will say, "Well, all they can do is primary care." That's not true. Depending on what kind of physician they are, even even people physicians who work in primary care have different designations. They might be able to. To do something slightly different mm-hmm. than, you know, a, a DO and a, a MD or, different. Um, so even getting down to that level with people or having them understand that they can shop for prescriptions. And again, to you and I, we've been in this industry and we talk this jargon all day long and it makes perfect sense. And then you meet somebody off the street who's like, oh, I can go somewhere else for my prescription. Yeah, you can go <laughs> yeah. wherever you want. And then yeah. you realize like the average American has absolutely no healthcare literacy mm-hmm. at their fingertips whatsoever. And so the TikToks are hard. I started making TikToks. We have a joint account the insurance couple where David breaks down a complex healthcare uh component in 60 seconds or less. Okay. And he always does it on the fly. I just put a camera in his face. I ask him a question. Yeah. He never knows what the question is and he nails it every time. And then I do TikToks that are, uh, I, I just share healthcare facts. Um, you have to, you kind of have to talk to them like you're talking to your children. Mm-hmm. If my 13 year old doesn't know what I'm saying, I rerecord it and I rerecord it and I rerecord That's it great. until he kind of gets it. Mm-hmm. And then I'm confident that an average adult will get it.
1: That's very smart. I was almost thinking like when you throw a camera in David's face and ask him to explain a complex subject, it might be fun for like Emma to then turn around and translate that. Like, hey, here's yes. what this means, right? Here's so what he said. Have, here's how this works, right? Because I think you forget sometimes that the, not only the jargon we use, the acronyms we refer yeah. to, I lose Train of thought all the time, right? I'm like, wait, what do you? What is care navigation or care navigation again or advocate? I mean, like, you just uh-huh. there's so many of the things.
0: Do you ever do that thing where someone throws out an acronym to you and you're like, oh yeah, and then you're like Googling it. Oh, of
1: course, yeah. <laughs> I'll just nod on the podcast and then I'll look it up. <laughs> look it up later, but just try to skirt away away from it. But I think I do think what you're describing, what you're doing with the TikTok, hopefully, what's being done with the podcast is. Mm-hmm having conversations regularly, hopefully pulling people into this Mm -hmm. world to say, Hey, this can be interesting. The people in it are interesting. The people in it are good and Mm want to do good things. Here's why you should care about this. And Mm -hmm. if you can sway them to care, then they'll lean in to learn. Right. And then we can kind of change a generation, their literacy of healthcare, but it's not an overnight thing. No, we're talking about changing the literacy of tens of millions or hundreds of millions of people. Mm -hmm. That doesn't happen overnight. No. And then how do you convince them to give a, you know what, in the first place, um,
0: I mean, I've not met very many people who have a positive healthcare experience story, so I think it's not as hard as 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 we want it to be. Um, you know what I do? <laughs> I'm a redditor. I've been a redditor for okay. years. Um, I I I check out the health insurance subreddit. Mm-hmm. And on there is just all people who are complaining about a bill that they got, a change in their benefits, whatever. And I go, I'll go, i go through it once a week and I'll find someone who's really struggling, someone who has a bill and the hospital's fighting with them. I've I can't even tell you how many bills I've gotten written off for complete strangers. But you know what's cool about that? It's not that their bill got written off, although that is cool, is that they end up telling someone else and someone else and they're yeah. like, oh my God, this weird random person <laughs> from Reddit reached out to me and she helped me eliminate my bill. And it's because there's this thing called the financial assistance program and you can qualify for it. And so they end up telling their neighbor or their friend or their cousin. And so I just find these little ways to infiltrate people's lives a little bit and give them some healthcare literacy so mm-hmm. that next time they know that they can do something else or they can come back to me again. I do the same on TikTok too, through my comments. That's
1: awesome. <laughs> That's amazing, uh, and I think it, it leads into how we maybe can close the podcast out is, I heard you use the word justice uh, yeah. earlier, and I know that's a big, uh, it seems like a big thing for you, and it sounds like the justice that you're able to to give those folks in that individual circumstances, mm-hmm. getting rid of their bill or helping them get rid of their bill. But like, what does that mean to you at scale, right? When we're talking about inequities, in if you will, in the healthcare system, what does justice look like for you and what are you hoping to achieve there?
0: Oh my gosh. I, I didn't say these questions
1: were super easy. <laughs> <am I? laughs> you didn't even give me the questions in advance. I know. I know. What was me? That way I get an organic response, <laughs> even if sometimes it's, uh, uh I think, yeah,
0: you know, for me, justice, this is going to sound so corny, but it, I want people to have justice. I want them to stop losing people to the healthcare system. I'll tell you this. I have three, three of my employees, um, they have lost family members as a result of the poor healthcare system. One of my employees lost both of her parents in, in the space of a year or two and uh, another one lost her mother to a cancer that should have been easily curable. Um, I want justice for those, for those people. I want justice for my team members. I want justice for me. I should never have had to file bankruptcy because I shouldn't have incurred that much debt in the first place. And I, Bet I would have qualified for the financial assistance program had anybody educated me that that was a thing back then. I want justice for people who are deciding whether they can buy groceries or diapers or they have to get the collector off their back. I, I want people to stop avoiding health care. Here's what I'll tell you, and this is kind of sensational. I have no proof yet, but I plan on getting it. I think the majority of the issues that we have in America, especially when it comes to mental health, is because folks don't have access to basic primary care. And it's creating this society of hatred and, and violence and shootings where we're, we're killing each other because we're so angry and upset. And it's because we don't have access to people who can care for us and mm-hmm. take care of us. And so I want justice for everybody who's been affected by anything like that too. Cause I think it all comes back to whether or not we have the resources to be taken care of. And in America right now, unless you're very wealthy, you don't have access to it. You're skipping your doctor's appointments. You're skipping your prescriptions. You're not getting prescriptions at all. And that has a really negative impact on your life in so many other ways. So I want justice for everybody, for all the people
1: We'll say, hey, it took you a moment to formulate an answer. And that was a brilliant answer that'll <laughs> i turn into a clip here. But one of the things that I will say to end this podcast, and I forgot the gentleman's name and it's going to bother me, but he posed a question in a video and it was like, would you rather exist in a world where you can't afford the child, the healthcare for your child, or would you rather exist in a world where that uh, solution didn't exist at all? Right. And so it's like, it exists in the United States. A lot of the innovation mm-hmm. comes out of the United States. Some of the price tags are insane. And so there's no right answer, but would you rather exist in a world where that solution or that cure didn't exist at all, or you can't afford it? And neither one of them are optimal, but we're dealing with, they do exist for the Mm -hmm. most part, we're trying to figure out how to pay for them or right. how to make it affordable or how to make it equitable or just whatever the word is you want to use so that everybody can access those things and it doesn't break them. It doesn't financially ruin them. Mm-hmm. And so I don't have the answer to that question. It's Me one either. of those like uh, answerless <laughs> questions, but that that is the uh, the wager that we're mm-hmm. having to deal with right now yeah. in the U.S. So great, uh, great way to end that podcast, in yeah. my opinion. Excellent answer there, Emma. And it's, I really appreciate you reaching out and, and setting this up on yeah, kind of short notice you. and getting a chance to sit down with you and David was awesome. Got probably two and a half podcasts out of this <laughs> as well in one day. So it feels like a long day and now we'll just go break and get a chance to think and breathe. Yep. So thanks. Awesome.